Oh dear. Hey guys, and welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, the show where we discuss everything there is to know about app development. I'm your host, Rob J, and in this episode, I chat with lead Android consultant, Erin Bujna. We talk about his origins in programming from the age of six, why he only works freelance, the challenges of getting a mortgage as a contractor, the writing process behind his new book, the problem with Google's own apps, and much, much more. Now on to the show. So before we get into my chat with Erin, just a little bit of housekeeping. So firstly, a huge shout out to everyone who attended last week's Q&A. We had some great questions. We had questions on Android, Flutter, Kotlin multi-platform, contracting, getting your first job as an app developer, all kinds of good stuff. So really appreciate everybody who turned up for that. And I'll be running another one in a month. So that'll be Friday, June the 11th. So if you would like to attend the next one, then you can go to coffeeencodingpod.com slash live QA to sign up. Or if you're on the Slack, you can join the live QA channel and you'll get the details near the time there. And if you're not on the Slack, then coffeeencodingpod.com forward slash Slack and you can join the Slack there. Secondly, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, I would really appreciate if you could jump onto Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and you can leave a review and leave us a review and a rating. The more the show gets, the easier it is for people to find it. We're all coders here, so you know these algorithms work. It only takes a minute. And if you're on an iOS device listening to this, you can literally just open your Apple Podcast app, navigate to the Coffee and Coding podcast and leave your rating and review there. And if you're on Android, then open the show notes wherever you listen to this and tap the link to Podchaser and you can leave a review and a rating there. I would really, really appreciate it. And the final thing before we get into today's episode, if you detect any echo on my end of the audio in this conversation, that would be because I recorded this podcast episode in my kitchen, which turns out is quite an echoey place. So I think I I salvaged it pretty well. So there's not too much echo. But if you do detect any, then that would be the reason why. And apologies if it's not up to my usual high quality audio standards. So with that being said, now on to the show. So to get started, so I was looking at your LinkedIn and it says you basically started programming when you were six. So just, just talk to me about that. How did you start programming when you were six and how did, how did that kind of lead you to where you are now? So that came from my dad. Uh, he was a civil engineer and, and then he switched to uh, software development. So there was a computer at home from a very early age. Now that's very common. I mean, everyone has a computer at home, but back in the day, it wasn't that common. I think he brought the first modem to uh, Israel. He imported the first modem. So, you know, they, they called him to the airport because they didn't know what this gadget was. Like, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Well, what is it you're importing here? And I think it was like, 2,400 bouts or something. It was like, you know, ridiculously slow. This is, I assume this is a dial-up modem, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. okay. Good old days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we, we've always had a computer at home and uh, my dad always enjoyed introducing me to programming. And, you know, it, it started with very simple things like Logo, if, if you remember Logo with the turtle-like cursor where you can tell it to turn left and right and draw things recursively and stuff like that. And and then I started writing batch scripts. Like you remember the good old DOS.bat files and, and you could have selections. So I, I'd write like stories, right? Where you can choose your path. 
so th these were the early days and and then basic and and basic was super cool because you could actually do graphics and stuff that was like next level and then started developing for the web at a later time so pearl i just picked up the pearl book and the next day i was writing pearl scripts running servers and it, it was very exciting you know knowing that a computer is on the cloud and and serving you pages and, and dynamic pages and you can generate images on the fly that there were so many opportunities there so yeah okay that's a lot it also looked like from your linkedin that you worked on or you at least experimented with a lot of a lot of different programming languages yeah i, I got lucky in a sense because um when i worked in israel I, I had quite a few companies i opened my first first company when i was 18 and and then one of my next companies, because every once in a while I, I ended up opening a new company doing something completely different. And and the most interesting one was developing for the advertising agencies in Israel. So for a short period of time, I was the, the sole developer for the largest advertising agency in Israel. So they, they'd come to me with a brief and they had no idea how how it would be implemented, right? So I would choose the technology and, and, and basically had to pick up new technologies as I went because what I knew at the moment might not be good enough to deliver what they asked for. So you learn something yeah. new. Yeah, I gotcha, I gotcha. So, so on that side note, right? So you start a, a company. I, I guess the question that's always interesting to listeners and to me, right? Is if you start a company, how do you get the word out? So how do they know to come to you to get you to build whatever it is you're building for them? It's a good question. Um, I think like many other things in life, it's, it's also to do with connections. So, I partnered up with a guy and his uh, wife at the time worked for a production company. So they were doing conventions and events. And, and so she told them, I know this guy who can deliver really cool stuff for you. So long before Xbox came around with, you know, real time AR, we were doing very simple AR uh, for conventions like a huge cylinder where you'd see objects falling and you could tap them and, and they'd transform and that was using cameras and stuff. And and then from there, it was just a short leap to an advertising agency that were like, oh, we, we heard you do all this cool stuff. Can you do this for us? And, and once you've delivered once, that, that opens the door for everything else. I gotcha. So it kind of is what everyone says, which is like word of mouth is, is really important, right? Yeah, but... I, in the UK, that's not what happened. In in the UK, it was a completely different experience. So what was it like in the UK? I, I moved here about eight years ago. Um, and I basically, again, followed my dad's footsteps because he, he was con contracting here uh, for the oil industry. And, and I saw I was making good money, right? So it was like, I, I'm struggling in Israel. I've, I've opened several companies. I worked with the biggest clients and I was still struggling. And I was thinking, why am I spending days without sleep when I can, you know, take the easy way out? So I, I moved here. It wasn't as easy as I expected at all. First three months, I couldn't get a single contract. You know, I put my CV out there on all the job boards. I started working on LinkedIn, approaching recruiters. Everything you'd expect would eventually get you the first contract. And it took three months for me to get a contract. And even then, I had to negotiate a uh, lower rate for the first month. And, and then I, I told them, if you're happy with me, in, increase my rate from the second month onwards. And, and that worked. And ever since then, every contract I've had, I've increased my rate. 
I've, I've never had to drop my rate or even keep it at the same level. That's really good. So when you came in, you were doing contracting. What work was that? Was that like mobile or was that something else? So it's, it's interesting because as we've mentioned before, I touched a lot of technologies. So when I came here, I was like, okay, I, I could do backend work. I could do JavaScript. I could do mobile. What do I do? And, and it turned out that people really weren't ready for this one person who can do everything. They, they, they want to categorize you. And actually now in hindsight, I, I kind of tend to agree with them because there's so much depth in every technology. If, if you spread wide, you're, you'll never be good at anything. You, you'll be decent in a lot of things. So I, I, what I did when I just moved to the UK, I created like six or seven CVs, each one focused on, on one tech stack and, and sent them out there. And it turned out that my first role was uh, an Android role. And that just stuck. <laughs> okay. All right. So that, that totally makes sense. And I feel like that's a really good approach, right? You make like five different CVs doing like saying that you're this developer because they definitely like to put you in a box. Like now I know you see a lot of things for full stack developers, but the thing that they're asking for, for the most part is not realistic. It's like you said, there's, there's nobody that's, you know, I can build the backend as good as a backend, just a pure backend dev. And I can like, there's nobody. Well, I'm sure there is, but it's, it's very rare that you get people that are that good because it would have had to have been like career change of like, I was a back end dev for five years. Now I did Android for five years. Now I did something else for five years. So I have that depth, but otherwise it's just, it's not practical. Yeah. And, and I mean, all, all these different technologies are shifting so quickly, you know, new libraries, new standards, the languages progress. How do you stay on top of more than one niche? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. That's crazy. So then I guess another question I have, which is to me, it's obvious, right? But to a lot of people, it's not. And for you, it might be a different answer, which is, so you came here, you were looking for a contract role. Why were you looking for a contract role and not looking for just like a permanent job? So for me, it's, it's kind of a mental thing. I want to be my own boss. I always did. I mean, I've only been a perm when I was 18. And that was for a very short period. And, and then I opened my first company and, and that was it. I, I was never employed anywhere as an employee. I've, I've always had my own companies. But it, it's also a financial thing. I mean, uh, on, on the one hand, you don't have the safety of, of a perm, you know, knowing that they can't let you go on, on a short notice. But if you don't have a lot of gaps in your portfolio, then you're making a lot more money. There are more reliefs and, and you get the freedom to decide what benefits you do want if you want any, rather than it being enforced on you. Like maybe I don't want a gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. No, I mean, I would agree with all those things. And I'm also of the opinion that the security idea about being a permanent role is not really that much more secure than being a contractor. Because like you said, like as a contractor, right, that I've got weeks notice, you guys can let me go next week. But it's really not that difficult being a contractor to go and find another role. But if I've worked at this company for five years, whatever my notice is, if it's a month, they could still decide tomorrow, you know, sorry, we don't need you anymore. And now you haven't interviewed until five years ago and you have no idea what CVs look like now. And for all you know, like you've been working on a legacy project, so you have none of the skills that people want now. So I feel like, like, I think it's a personal decision. I know some people like the idea of like a, a consistent paycheck and they don't have to go and find work and all that kind of stuff. But I definitely think like the security concern is, is a lot less valid than it used to be. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, although you will find that there are problems with being a contractor, right? I'm, I'm trying to get a mortgage now and 
they're making it very difficult for us. Like you can say uh, my income is like 50% above a perm of, of the same level of experience. They don't care. I literally just went through the same experience and, and got a mortgage. So like what kind of hurdles are you coming up against now? So, you know, there's this government help where they help the lenders offer you 95%. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So that means you only need to put a 5% down payment. So, you know, I, I do the math and a 5% down payment I, I can afford. And then I can also afford the monthly payment. They'll be lower than my rent for the past few years. So there is no reason whatsoever to worry about my ability to deliver, right? And my credit score is high. I mean, you know, everything's in place for them to be completely confident to give you give me a mortgage, but they won't. I mean, the high street lenders, they only look at your net income. So if you're tax efficient and you keep some money in your company for a rainy day, or, you know, you have a lower salary and you pay yourself in dividends, they don't care. So they, they're very, you know, narrow-minded I, I would agree i had to like we had to plan it a little bit forward so i had to pay myself over what i would normally pay myself so i had to pay myself like a less tax efficient salary so that i would meet the thresholds to say oh you earn this much money and i d- had to do that for like because they want two years of statement so i had to do that for two years which it's not that bad like it, it kind of worked out that i i start i paid myself you know just before april 6th last year and then just after april 6th this year so that's two years but it only takes like a year and a day to do it but i was going to say have you checked out um there's a website called habito or habito and which is like a online mortgage broker i'll I'll check them out yeah definitely because i I went through them and like it it wasn't that difficult for me like we got like a high street lender in the end but they they were really good it's all online like you don't talk to anyone it's literally just like a facebook messenger chat type thing and they ask you questions Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's that's what I like. It's just like, tell me what you want. I'll send you the documents and all that kind of stuff. And they were really responsive. Um, And I think they have like high street lenders. And then if you find a, a lender that, you know, works with contractors, they usually, the interest is a bit higher, but it, it just depends how it works out, but they might be worth a shout. Cool. I'll check them out. Thank you. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's interesting stuff. Like the, the rules that they have aren't built for people like us. They're built for people that you might earn less money than we do, but on paper, it looks, it looks better. And it's the same thing. It's like you, you can very clearly show them, like, I can pay like the next 12 years, next year's worth of like mortgage right now, but that's not acceptable because it doesn't, there's no checkbox on their form that says, Oh, has, have you got that? So <laughs> yes, yep. it's crazy. It's crazy the way the world works. So before I, I want to get to the book, right? Before we jump into the book. So, you know, you've been doing like mobile development for, for a long time. You've been contracting for a long time and I see you've done a lot of lead roles. So something that I, I'm always interested in is like, how do you approach the, the lead role position, especially as a contractor, but just, just in general, like how, how do you, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. I, I guess the best example I can give is when, when I've been a lead developer and I've worked with, you know, so you're working with the iOS team and the back end, everybody's got their own lead, right? And like one team, the lead sets up loads of meetings and they do one on ones and all this kind of stuff. And then on the other team, the guy is just like, you know, given direction, you guys do this, do this. And I generally approach it as though I'm going to try and do the most work out of everybody. And I'm going to kind of lead by example as what I want people to do. So I don't want to have to tell people, you guys need to do this. You need to do this way. That's, that's kind of like what PRs are for, right? Like I can give you code reviews and stuff. I'd rather just, you guys can see what I'm doing 
And I expect that I'm doing more than you. So you, you don't have to keep up, but you can like kind of follow that path so that I, I guess it's less instructional. Um, so kind of how do you approach the lead developer role? Yeah, very, very similar to what you just described. So my assumption is the people on the team are probably less experienced. And, and it also depends on an, at what point you got into the project, right? If it's a greenfield project, then you need to lay the groundwork, like put the architecture in place. And then they can just follow your patterns. And then if it's an already existing project, then you need to come up with a plan to migrate it towards something that, you know, is scalable, maintainable. And, and like you said, code reviews are a very good platform to convey your knowledge and experience. So it's, it's about being very thorough in your code reviews and, and leaving very detailed comments with references to further reading. If you see someone struggling, have one-on-ones with them, see where they're struggling, explain ideas verbally to them, make sure they understand the concepts and don't just, you know, follow the rules. This is especially true with some cultures where they they tend to want to please you more than fully understand why they're doing things. So it, it helps to make sure that everyone really understands why you're doing something a certain way rather than another. Because if, if you don't convince them, they'll do it once, but then they'll go back to their old ways. But if you do convince them, you know, something clicks and, and that's it. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's good for people to, it's definitely good for people to know why. Also, because from like a morale perspective, people don't like to be told, no, you do it this way because I want you to do it this way. It's better if you like, you do it this way because this is my logic. Because at least then if they have a different opinion, they could also come back and say like, you know what? What about this way? And maybe we haven't thought of that. And, and then that way it's not, uh, yeah, I, I definitely approach. Yeah. I would agree with your approach because I don't like, I don't like managing in a manager sort of way, I guess is the best way to put it. Like that's not why we're contractors, right? Otherwise we'd be permanent employees. So on that note, right? So I would assume and correct me if I'm wrong that you've, you've been part of the hiring process as a lead developer for people in your team. So how do you approach that in terms of like, how do you approach interviews? How do you approach reviewing CVs and that kind of thing? really challenging. I, I don't think there's one rule fits all kind of thing. So I, I try to ask some technical questions to, to get an idea of, of, you know, how a person thinks. I, I don't care so much if they memorize everything by heart because I don't. I don't see the point. Everything's available on Stack Overflow, Google and of course. Yeah, so yeah. forth. Uh, so it's, it's not really practical to just see how well they can mon- memorize. But I do want to see how they approach things, um, you know, conceptually. And then uh, if a CV has typos on it, I've, I've seen LinkedIn discussions about whether or not that's a big deal. For me, it is a big deal. I think if, if you don't respect yourself enough to represent yourself in the best possible way, you're just lazy. I, I don't see how you'll be any different at work. I mean, I, you know, I may be dyslectic. I'm, I'm not, but I, I may be dyslectic. And, and, and then I'll ask for someone to help me, right? I mean, think outside of the box, get, get, get something in place that rectifies your shortcomings. Yeah, I would agree. Like, I don't think I would disqualify someone for having a typo, but I would definitely, it would definitely put this seed in your mind that they might be a bit lazy because it's the first impression that you're giving somebody and you haven't even bothered to like proofread it to make sure that it's okay. So it's, it's kind of like that thing where it's like, it, it could be a genuine mistake. Like you might have proofread it and you, you missed it and that's okay. And so maybe you'd get to the interview and I'd be like, Oh, you know what? It was probably a mistake. This guy or this girl seems fine. But yeah, I would definitely, yeah, people that are listening, like definitely proofread your CVs because 
yeah, you don't know who's reading it and that might be the thing that turns them off and you might be absolutely the best candidate for the job. So getting into the book, right? So you have a book. Is it out or is it is it pre-ordered? It's out. So you have a book which is called, got it in my notes, How but you're going to know it off by. Android apps with Kotlin. <laughs> How to build Android Gantry. apps with Kotlin. Okay. I, I knew the words, but I couldn't remember the order. Um, <laughs> so, so my question is, why did you decide to write the book, first of all? So I'm actually a co-author there. There are three other authors. We were approached by Pact. And it's interesting. I was reading a book a short while ago called Soft Skills, which I highly recommend. And and that planted the seed in my head that, you know, maybe I want to write a blog. Maybe I want to write a book. But at the time, I didn't have anything concrete in mind as to what I'll be writing about. And then Pact approached me saying, we want to write this Android book. Would you be interested? I was like, yeah, it's an interesting challenge. Why not? It's something I've not done before. I mean, they know what they want in in terms of, you know, what content they need. So I just need to spit out the stuff that I already know. So why not? Okay. So what was the process like then? Because I I know you said like you're you're not the only author, right? So that adds a whole different element to it. I assume maybe you guys like separate the work or how did that work? Yeah. So we, we had a Slack channel where we discussed what content we want to have in, in such a book. So we knew the book needed to introduce developers to Android who haven't done Android before, right? So they may already know Kotlin or, or Java, but they don't know Android. So we thought, what, what were the things you really must know in order to be able to deliver a working app? So we listed everything that we thought was important group things that, you know, made sense to be grouped together. And and then we divided it into several chapters and, and split those chapters between us. So each one of us got a few chapters and, and we went off our separate ways to write these chapters. I would have liked to have more collaboration within the team, but I didn't feel uh, packed were really driving that process, you know, like more code reviews on, on the actual code snippets for the book or actual proofreading of the different chapters for feedback and so forth. We, we never got around to that. Okay. So then I'm, I'm interested in like how much time did that take to, to write your part? Because you were working, were you working while you were doing this or were you just focused on this? I think if I remember correctly, it's, it's funny because it, it, it was so long ago that we started writing it. And I think we had five or six different editors during the writing process, like, you know, every time we were promised, this is your last editor, he's going to be you with you all else. the way. Yeah. Again. And, and then they changed them anyhow. So we wrote the whole thing. I think I was between contracts at the time. So it was convenient in that sense. I, I just made it my full time job. Um, and, and then I focused on wrapping it up over weekends. And, uh, and then by, by the time Pact were ready to actually ship it, it, it was already outdated. It's been a year since we've written it. So we, we had to revisit everything and, and, you know, bring everything up to date. Okay. So another question that I have about the book writing process, right? I'm just super interested because you don't meet that many people that have done it, which is it, let's say somebody out there is listening and they have an idea that, you know, they're an iOS developer or they want to write the Android book about Jetpack Compose or whatever, right? What advice would you have for somebody who has like, they know it, they know coding, they know all that stuff. They have no idea about publication or working with editors or any of that stuff. Like what advice would you have to them that you've learned through this process that you didn't know before? Well, I, I think it's, it's more simple than you'd think. It's, it's 
probably just finding someone in, in one of those publications. I think they're hungry for content. I mean, that's their core business. So if, if you have value to add, I think they'll happily take it. So it's, it's just about, you know, taking that first step and, and approaching them. Okay, awesome. All right, that's good advice. I, I like it when people say it's, it's easier than you think it would be. That's, that's always my favorite answer. On, on another a side note, so the book is about building Android apps in Kotlin, right? So just, just, you know, for people that are listening that are Android developers, like in your super experience, what would you say are like your top two or top three things that you like about Kotlin? It, it could be anything. In my head, it would be like, you know, when I first started doing it, the fact that you could do like question mark dot was amazing coming from Java where, you know, MPs all over the place. But for your experience now, like what would you say, like your top two or three things? So immutability would definitely be at the top of the list. You know, when I picked up Kotlin, uh, I already had a few years of experience with Java and you could put final everywhere, but it, it, it's just noise. It's a lot of noise and, and you wouldn't put it. And, and then that tempts you to modify the data. So you, immutability is something you just didn't have. And, and that to me is great. Like having uh, data classes that, that are fixed, you know, point to point, you want to create a copy, you have a copy function, you can modify what you want and you have a new instance. That's great. And, and that removes a lot of bugs. And the other thing is it's very concise. And, and that's a great thing for us as developers, right? You, you want to have the least amount of code doing the most amount of work and, and, and still not have it in a cryptic way. Right. You want to be able to read it, understand what it means, but you don't need all the boilerplate. If you can get rid of the boilerplate, that's amazing. Those are three really good points. Immutability, I think, is something that I just take for advantage now because I forget what it was like to have to write final. And you, to your point, nobody writes final. And then when you're trying to do something, you're like, well, I could do it the right way or I could just change this value. And then that's where you get problems. So I, I want to ask about something else. So I was looking at your LinkedIn, like I mentioned earlier, and I found this post and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to read a snippet um, for people that are listening. So you were talking about the state of Google's own Android apps. And part of the quote was given Google's insane hiring process, it is unbelievable. The output is so poor. Clearly they're looking for the wrong things in developers. And then, and then you go and say that it's a reflection of a, a broken education system where people are taught to memorize rather than understand. Right. So I have a bunch of questions on that. And I, and I would agree with you for the, well, for all the part actually. But the first thing that I wanted to ask is that you're saying that they're looking for the wrong things in developers. So what would you say are the right things that they should be looking for? So what I'm looking for when, when I'm hiring is, is people who are a very passionate about what they do and, and good thinkers, right? So I, I want to see how they approach a problem they've never been faced with before. I want to see their thinking process. I, I don't necessarily have to have them solve a problem successfully, but I want to see how they approach it. Because like we said, in, in a real life scenario, you've got Google, it's very likely that that problem has been solved before by someone else and, and you just need to, you know, copy paste a lot of it. But, but it's good to see that you have a healthy process going on in your head. So I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in people who are passionate about what they do, have been doing it for very long. You know, they have their own projects, their own GitHub, things like that. I, I want to see people who are passionate about what they do. Okay. All right. That's a valid point. And then, and then on to your other point about like Google's own apps, right? So I would agree totally that 
I, I think it works. This is the way that I see it work is right. You know, Google releases a new framework or material design or whatever it is. And then they will have one app that just came out that uses all the right things at that time, like quote unquote right things at that time. And then that app will never get updated to three years time what the new thing is. And the apps previous to that will never get updated. And then eventually they change bits and pieces as they go and they like to take away features that people like. I don't know why they do this. Like, I used to be of this mindset that they it's cool because they're basically experimenting all the time until you realize that it's with everything and there's no good reason for it. Like, it's it, like they had Inbox, right? Everybody liked Inbox and then they took Inbox away. But it's like, why did you, why did you do that? Why didn't you not just have those features in Gmail as like, you know, test lab features that we could turn on and off? And, and so you wrote that post a year ago. So how, how do you feel about today? Do you feel like that's any different or do you feel like it's still exactly the same? So I, I have, you know, a lot of frustrations about Google Music, uh, Google Play yeah. Music, which was yeah. a great service. And, and I was a paying user and uh, I've, I've switched to Deezer now because YouTube is, is such a regression for me as 100%. a user. I know some people actually love it. So, you know, it's just not for everybody. I, I don't understand, like you said, the shifts they they make in, in their apps. Like nothing is stable. It, it keeps changing and not necessarily for the better. I, I was also an Inbox user and I, I was a great fan of Inbox. And one day that just went away. And they also had nice things there like, remind me when I get home. And then they dropped that feature. Now you can just snooze. <laughs> it's not just their apps. I mean, if you look at the source code of their SDKs, because the source code is is there, you, you can see it's, it's quite horrendous in, in terms of industry standards. Like you have massive classes with tons of responsibilities. The, the code is really poorly written. And then there are to-dos in there sprinkled throughout. <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it, it's everything you, you would tell other developers not to do, that they do it all. And then I, I went to a talk once by some Google developers talking about the navigation component, which to me is, is still a broken concept. Uh, I remember someone asked me why and I came up with a very long list of why, but I, I think it's a really broken process, the, the whole navigation component. And it feels like, you know, the juniors at Google are, are playing around with it. It's like they're a toy and, and they have these exciting new ideas. And they're playing around with them. And, and to me, that is very scary because Google is, is you know, the foundation of everything, at, at least in the Android world. So when you play around with things, you're, you have a huge impact. So that, that, that's what really upset me and, and led me to write that post. All right. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had the same sort of thoughts and I always find it really interesting where, you know, I'll be working on something and there's a bug and, you know, give it a couple of like stack overflow pages and you find out that there was like a ticket for this bug five years ago and it was just closed. It's just closed. That's it. Like people are still experiencing it. There's no comment to say will be fixed or won't be fixed. It's just, it's just gone and nobody wants to hear it anymore. And like it's stuff like that, which I find is crazy, especially because like coming from developers, right? If it wasn't for, Android developers, we'd all be using iPhones. Like the apps is what makes like nobody buys the phone because I can get Gmail because I can get Gmail on whatever phone that I buy. But the apps in the developers that make the apps is what make the experience. And so it's crazy that, yeah, it's definitely crazy the the way that they handle their own apps. And then, you know, the horror stories that you hear about the Play Store as well. I was reading something the other day where somebody got banned because so apparently if you have Google ads in your app, there's a clause in terms and conditions that says, um, you know, it's, it's like click fraud if you click your own links. 
but they don't tell you how they detect click fraud because they don't want you to go around it. So people get emails saying you've been banned from Google ads because of click fraud. We can't give you the evidence of why. So you, and there's also an appeals process, but you can't appeal because you don't know what they think you did. <laughs> so, so literally it's just a form that you fill out and you automatically get rejected. And then in the Play Store terms and service, if you do click fraud, you get banned from the app store. So then their app got banned from the app store. And again, there's no, there's no appeals process, right? So yeah. for as much as like it's, it's open and all that kind of stuff, like there's definitely things that I feel like Apple does way better. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there is horror stories about the app store as well, but at least you understand like my thing's in review because somebody's looking at it. I, I know 99%, I'm sure nobody's looking at the Google apps that go on the Play Store. I'm pretty sure there's just a timer that's like, right, it's been a couple of hours or it's been three days and then it just accepts you. So yeah, I think the whole, the whole ecosystem is pretty broken to be honest. So I found this um, optimizingmylife.com. So talk to me about this. Like, where did this start? Where did this come from? So I mentioned the soft skills book earlier. And, and one of the things that was suggested there was to write a blog. And I was like, okay, great advice. But what do I write about? I, I have nothing to write about. I've, I've got nothing that I want to share with the world. And then I think it, it took quite some time until, you know, something clicked. And I was like, Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm always preoccupied with the idea of optimizing everything about my life. And it's, I think it's uh, a developer trait. I think a lot of us are looking at things and thinking, oh, this could be done better. And then I, I just started writing down in my keep all these different pointers to things that I do enough. And I realized I have quite a long list of things. So I started posting these very short blog posts, just basically, you know, Delivering ideas, very simple ideas. I, I, I don't write three pages long posts. They're all very concise. Some of them are uh, developer related. Others are just things I, I found useful in, in my day to day life. All right. So then the next part of that question is, and now that you mentioned developer related, so two questions. What would you say is the best optimization that you've made one in life and two as in a develop, as a developer? Oh God. Uh, that's hard. That's very hard. It doesn't have to, I mean, you can give me the top three if you want, or whichever comes first in your mind, whichever is easiest for you. So I think in, in code, you know, it's, it's, I, I used to do all these micro optimizations. And I think one of the biggest things is I've learned to look for the bottleneck. So find where the real problem is and optimize there rather than optimize everywhere. So it, it's, it's kind of a meta, <laughs> meta optimization tip, but it, I think it's it's one of the most important ones, you know, rather than focusing on something that might take you five minutes, if, if done inefficiently to make it into four minutes, find something that takes you three hours and turn it into two hours. You know, it's it's much more impactful. And I, I think that's the same for development. I mean, it's it's the same idea, right? I mean, if, if you just go through your code and start optimizing everything, you end up with code that's hard to maintain, hard to understand, and then try and keep those things to a minimum. Like I, I very often end up on code reviews saying, actually, you know what? Instead of having one loop, split this into two loops. And like, it, it'll be a bit less efficient. And like, yeah, if, if, if we find out that performance is a concern, we can address it at that point. But right now it's going to be much easier for us to maintain. That's, that's a really good point because people could understand that. Everybody, like all developers try and do things in the most efficient slash least code that they can do. 
And sometimes, especially when you're working in teams, like more code sometimes is better because you know what you were trying to do and you could probably explain it to your team. But in a year's time, when there's new members of the team that come in, nobody knows what you were trying to do. And so, so last question from me, which is um, one that I like to ask everyone, which is what do you think separates an okay developer from a great developer? That's a good question. Um, I think it, it would be about clean code mostly. So when you write code, if, if instead of thinking about what's the most beautiful quotes, and, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes because beautiful is, is, you know, in the eye of the beholder, in, instead of focusing on, on writing beautiful code, write maintainable, readable, understandable code. If you can do that, I, I think you'll be a great team player. And, and that means you, you'll add a lot of value wherever you go. So it's, it's really about clean code. Okay. All right. Great answer. Um, and then final, final question, which is where can people find you online? Where would you like me to direct them to? All that good stuff. Oh, God. Uh, I've got a lot of online presence. I think LinkedIn is probably the best place to go or my blog, which you mentioned, Optimizing My Life. Okay, perfect. And, and there's one thing I, I would recommend to anyone listening, yeah. which is read a lot. I mean, there are really good books out there. And, you know, when I was maybe 23, I, I thought I knew everything because I've, I've worked on so many technologies with, you know, so many different challenges. I, I really did think I, I knew everything. And then you start reading books and, and you realize there's so much out there you don't know yet. And there is so much to learn and, and there's so many ways you can improve. So just read a lot. And starting with your book, if you haven't, if people <laughs> listening, they haven't learned Android yet. <laughs> Big thanks to today's guest, Erin Buchner. You can connect with Erin on LinkedIn and you can find his blog at optimizingmylife.com. And you can check out his book, How to Build Android Apps with Kotlin on Amazon or wherever you get books. Finally, if you like the show, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating or a review. You can do that either via Apple Podcasts or via podchaser.com. The link is in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com slash donate. Caffeine is literally what fuels this podcast. If you'd like to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter at lowcarbrob. And if you'd like to connect with like-minded developers and other listeners, you can do so in our Slack community at coffeeencodingpod.com slash Slack. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee Encoding Podcast. <laughs>